Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Friends, we have reached the end of season three. I want to thank you for following me and our guests on this wonderful journey. We've learned so much more and I feel like there's a lot more to learn and I'm really excited about it. In this past three months, we have learned about artivism in the environmental movement and the power of art in moving or creating behavioral change. We've also learned about queer ecology and how to dismantle the concept of the binary in nature and to see nature as she is in our most non-binary greatness. And then finally, talking about environmental justice movements and what that really looks like on the ground and the power of collaboration. And again, we saw how art is being used by Rices Collective in California and how they're collaborating with the Environmental Collective for Environmental Justice and interpreting data on air quality, water quality, to help EJ communities better understand the threats that they're facing, but also give them the tools to stand up for themselves, essentially. And then our last session, or our last episode, rather, was with the wonderful Susan Nakachwa and Leonida Odongo from Uganda and Kenya, respectively, who were talking to us about how food sovereignty is being threatened by large corporations and by unfair free trade agreements and how it's threatening the power and the existence of women in the agricultural sector. With this final episode, I'm really happy to be able to close it out with D Woods, who's also kind of continuing this conversation around food sovereignty, food security, but in the UK now. And D is a food and farming actionist who advocates for good food and a just and equitable food system. And she has been challenging the systemic barriers that impact marginalized communities and food producers in the UK. And she has been really involved in the nexus of human rights, policy, decolonial research, community and cultural practice, and spirituality when it comes to farming. And so another great thing about Dee, which you'll find out a little bit more in detail towards the end of the episode, is that Dee is an award-winning cook. And she shares some of her favorite dishes, her favorite fruits and veggies. But what's really great about this conversation is Dee talks about how she herself experienced food insecurity at one point in her life. And she had two children that she needed to provide for. And this eventually led to her co-founding the Granville Community Kitchen in South Kilburn in London. And it's just such a heartwarming story. And unfortunately, it also feels like she shouldn't have gone through that. But 
it's really impressive how she's built this massive network of communications over time. And she also talks about how the pandemic had a huge negative impact on communities in London. And she really starts to share with us some of these inequities that exist in London that, for me, honestly, I didn't expect this. It's almost very similar to the U.S. And the U.S. is considered one of the richest countries, and so is the U.K. And it's really shocking to me that, once again, disabled, queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, and people of color are taking the brunt of these policies. But on a more positive note, I'm really glad that we get to talk to people like Dee because she shares with us how she's taken matters into her own hand, how she has used her own knowledge, her passion for food justice and food sovereignty to do something about it in her own community. And that's really one of the biggest purposes of this podcast is to showcase that people who really care for their communities are making a difference in their communities and that it's not just all doom and gloom. And yes, we're heading to a course of collision, especially with climate change, but there's still hope to halt, if not to reverse the impacts of climate change that it has on our communities, on our cultures, on our knowledge, on our livelihoods. And so I am really just grateful that we get to end this conversation for season three with D Woods. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And our next season, season four, begins November 2nd. So I hope you have a wonderful, restful October. And we will see you, or rather we will hear from you in a month. But in the meantime, we're on social media. So please do follow us on Instagram as well as Facebook. We're also on Twitter. So all of these social links will be provided in the notes for this episode. So thank you again, dear friend, listener, for continuing this journey with us on wanting to expand your understanding about the world, the environment, and how us humans interact with Mother Nature. And I'm really beyond able to express myself of how unexpected and how grateful I am for you listening. So. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you, Dee Woods, so much for being with us on the Breaking Green Ceilings. Today, we're going to be talking about your passion for food, for food sovereignty and justice in the UK and beyond. And so I'd like to get started with our typical first question here, which is what role has nature played in your life? And welcome again. Thank you, Satma, for inviting me onto your podcast. I think nature has always been a part of my life. My earliest memories are of being in Hyde Park and Kew Gardens and Holland Park and being surrounded by plants and especially Kew Gardens, all these amazing specimens from around the world. And then moving to Trinidad with my family and having this amazing tour of the island. Because my dad, who's from Trinidad and Tobago, he wanted us to experience the sort of natural world of Trinidad and Tobago. And 
that memory has stuck with me. You know, that very first taste of a ripe mango off a tree, of picking cocoa and tasting that fruit and, you know, learn about the entire process of cocoa and just the smell, the sound of howler monkeys. That memory has stayed with me. So wow, that inspires me. And then sort of learning from other family members about foraging and herbs and the spirituality of nature as well. Wow. Wow. I feel like I was there with you, but I tend to be a very visual person. One of the things that I'm, as you were talking about the Kew Gardens, or Kew rather, is, is it called a garden? It's a Kew Garden, right? I think it is Kew Gardens. Yeah. I yeah, love calling yeah. it Kew Gardens. I mean, it is this massive place. It's not just the conservatories right. and the glass houses. It's this massive garden. Yeah, I remember learning about it in our environmental history course because we were looking at how different kind of monarchies took care of like nature or how they tried to control nature and looking at gardening over a period of time. I can't remember the dates here because I graduated a very long time ago, (laughs) but we were looking at how gardening was done in the 18th century, 19th century, and how it kind of like changed at first. They wanted to control nature because it was a sense of like, man is kind of above nature. We're more intelligent or whatever. And so we should be able to mold nature the way we want to. And so there was a very much focused kind of approach of having cleanly sheared hedges and just very specific types of species of plants, flowers, etc. And then over time, it was more of like, nature is beautiful and perfect in the way she is. And let's just plant whatever and see how it comes out. But one of the kind of case studies that we looked at was Kew Gardens. And I was like, man, if I go to the UK, I really, really want to go there. So I'm a little bit jealous that you were there. (laughs) We do have the Eden Project as well, which is just as amazing. I have not heard of that one. The Eden Project has created the different sort of natural environment that exists. Mm -hmm. So you have your temperate, your subtropical, just various environments and these big biodomes. Absolutely amazing place. Yeah, one of the things that one of my favorite things to do when I visit another new city is go to the botanical gardens if they have any. And I was in the botanical garden in Cleveland. It's not very big, but it was really nice. I was really impressed with it. And they had birds and frogs and butterflies. I've never seen that in a botanical garden before, but they had the birds from the specific region in like the garden so I think it was like Africa and they had some specific African birds I was like uh I don't know how I feel about this but it's kind of cool they're kind of in their natural habitat and they have their natural foods exactly because trees and plants and the flora don't exist in isolation right they exist with sort of biodiversity Yeah. So how long did you live in Trinidad for? So I spent my formative youth there for about, yeah, lived there for 13 years. 
Wow. But I've spent most of my life in the UK. So born in London and I still live in London. Yeah. Do you get to go back home? Yes, I do. That's nice. Haven't been in four years. The pandemic hasn't helped either. Yes. Because Trinidad shut borders. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a citizen, so I can't enter. Isn't that ironic? That's interesting. So, well, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Immigration interests me. <laughs> that, that's the rabbit hole of, of borders and citizenship. and. I mean, it's another environmental issue in of itself because those borders, nature doesn't recognize those, but those are man-made borders in a sense and those policies. Anyways, so how then did your experiences of foraging and cultivating the land, experiencing nature in that intimate way, then kind of like follow you as you grew up in the UK? I think for me, it became a foundation. So the first thing I did when I moved back to London was I bought myself some compost and pots and whatever, and I had to grow some of my own food, even mm. without land. You know, it was so mm-hmm. ingrained in me that you go outside and you pick your fresh herbs or you go pick your tomatoes. And so literally is in my blood and way of being. being. That's really cool. So these days you're very much involved in promoting, advancing food justice. So how has that kind of come to become the center of your work? Okay, so most of my youth, you could say, because I am 55, so I've lived quite a full life. I worked in community development and did sort of youth work, dabbled in fashion for a bit and totally hated it Oh, because of (laughs) some of those environmental and justice issues and it was me actually becoming ill and experiencing some of those violence from state that meant I couldn't afford to buy food and I had two young children and rather than turn into a food bank I sort of went to my community and said well what can we do together as a community because I knew I wasn't alone. There were other women with children who were experiencing similar. And we started a community garden and sort of growing our own food and sharing our experiences of people from different parts of the world. And a couple of years later, we started a community kitchen called Granville Community Kitchen because for me it wasn't enough that we just grow food and teach people how to grow food and compost that people needed to know how to cook food because these are skills that are being lost in our modern society and we've just gone from there for me it was like peeling back layers of an onion So once I got into that world and recognized, hang on a minute, why can't we do this here? Why can't I access land? 
I started looking into policy and I don't have an academic background. I don't have a policy background. I was just someone who was concerned with how top-down decisions affected our lives and met with similar people and we started working on policy proposals. Wow. So what kind of policy proposals were you working on? So initially with sort of other community organizations, we sort of preempted the strategic plan for London. So every 10 years, London has a strategic plan based on health and environment and housing and those sorts of things. And so we preempted that with a new mayor coming in and produced this social compact and then started lobbying the different politicians from different parties. And then eventually I applied to be on the London Food Board based on that. What were the nature of the policies? What were you asking for? So... I work specifically on housing and environment. And this is one of my bugbears that, you know, food is shoved into environment. And we sort of provided policies on procurement, how the city will buy food for schools and for prisons and hospitals, policies on access to land policies on education, and also policies on green infrastructure that actually grow in food and produce in food in mixed farming systems is actually good for the environment, much better than sort of just planting a tree and a strip of grass. Yes, yes, yes. We have, I think it's called like guerrilla farming, where they'll just start planting veggies in like on sidewalks or in like just common spaces like that's kind of cool i did a bit of that but if you're going to feed a community if you want to feed people you need access to land and that's a major issue here in the uk historically first with what they call the enclosures where the wedding system was feudal and ordinary people couldn't access land anymore. And that's why we have hedgerows in the UK. That was, you know, for the landowners to indicate what bit of land belonged to them. Oh, I had no idea. But hedgerows are also wonderful sources of biodiversity and food. But, you know, I think a lot of times, and for a lot of people, they don't know the legacy or the history of land in the UK. And when we get to empire and colonialism, there's even more Eurasia. Yes, yes. So how do you find land in a city like London, which is, I don't know how old London is. It's probably one of the oldest cities in world, but... It's old. We have an issue with what we call land grabbing. Land grabbing and land, what's the word, where they keep, people who buy land, keep it so that value goes up. I'm sure someone out there will remember the proper term. 
So people buy land and do nothing with it. So its value goes up. Yeah. I don't know what the word for that is. The only word that's coming up in my head is hoarding. (laughs) Yeah. So it is a type of hoarding. So it means ordinary people can't access that, can't afford. And that's why I was doing work on housing as well, because it is about the land. Right. Right. A building is worth nothing. Right. But the value of the land is. So which is why a new build, one bedroom flat or apartment costs half a million pounds. Oof. Yes. And your average Londoner can't afford to buy that. No. Much less rent that. Right. There was something that you said earlier on in the conversation where you mentioned that most of us don't even know how to grow our food anymore. And I was like, that's me. If like there was an apocalypse tomorrow, I would not know how to grow my food. And I've thought about it multiple times. And now that like I have a yard, I've been wanting to put together like a little veggie garden. But I did that once when I lived in Austin, like we built the boxes and I got the soil and I got the seeds and then I put the seeds in the soil. And then within a few minutes, my dog came and just destroyed the entire thing. And I was like, all right, this is not meant to be. But I think there's also, and I did take some courses or I guess like small little workshops here and there on like what to plant, when to plant. but. I don't know why, even though I tried it once and I went to the extent of building the boxes and getting the soil and the seeds and all that stuff and going for the classes, it still feels like such an intimidating process. Is that just me or? I think a lot of people think like you. They think that you have to be an expert and have degrees and whatever. But you know what? Most of us who are seed keepers and land elders and stewards. We've never done that. I learned from my dad. I learned from my grandmother. I learned from my community. And you try something, it works, you know, well, all right, I'll keep doing that. All right? Yeah. I don't think I can take like rejection from a seed not growing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, believe me, that was my year this year because such an odd year weather-wise. So we had a very long, cold winter, which meant, especially for me who's growing sort of tropicals, it meant nothing germinated. And then we had so much rains, everything got flooded. Oh, no. And then it went really, really hot. Oh. So not a good year for harvesting or growing a lot of foods. Wow. I'm guessing it's because of climate change that your yield or lack thereof? Most definitely climate change. I mean, London had several floods this summer. Mm. So going back to finding the land in London and kind of promoting food security, what are some of the issues around food security in the UK or in the communities that you work in? You kind of alluded to some of that earlier on? So in terms of land access, a combination of activists and community food growers and 
sort of local government are working on opening up lands in the peri-urban and peri-urban just refers the green belt land around the city and that's where most farming has occurred around cities since you could say the 18th 19th century and that's how most cities fed themselves it wasn't necessarily from rural farming so we're doing that again but it still is difficult. I mean, most farmers are tenant farmers and don't own their land. In terms of household food insecurity, we have quite a lot of poverty in the UK. And hunger or food insecurity is a symptom of that. Here, they tend to use the term food poverty, but to me, that's just a fragmentation of poverty. So you have child poverty, you have food poverty, you have period poverty, but at the end day, it is all poverty. So one of the things I'm involved with, I'm the co-chair of the Independent Food Aid Network. When the organization was created several years ago, I think it was in 2016, there weren't that many food banks. Now, as independents, we have over 500 members, and some of those members have several branches. Wow, 500. And at least a fifth of the UK population is in extreme poverty and needs to use a food bank or food aid organization. And that's in what the fifth richest country in the world. So the injustice of that is that people are poor because of government policies. There has been a correlation between what they call austerity policies, where welfare policies have changed and the value of welfare has decreased over time. So for a family that has more than two children. There's a cap on child benefit. Disability benefits haven't really increased over time. And for people in unemployment benefit, there are lots of sanctions and the value of that isn't really enough for people to live on. Alongside that, we don't have fair working conditions. So we have something called zero-hour contracts, which affects a lot of women who work part-time. So they only call you when they think there's work available. So you have no job security. So you said it's called a zero-hour... Zero-hour contract. And what exactly does that mean? It means you have no security of tenure. Oh, so it's not like... Here in the U.S., if you're full-time, then you, you have to work like 40 hours a week, right? So that's yeah. your security. If you work 40 yeah. hours, you get paid even if you don't work, depending <laughs> which organization yeah. you are in. Right. Whereas with zero hours, it means you don't get paid. Oh, wow. You don't work, you don't get paid. Interesting. And so is that for most jobs or is that for specific jobs? Quite a lot of jobs within hospitality within the private sector. So a lot of part-time jobs are like that. 
and especially in London, you know, and then people on minimum wages of, I can't remember how much it is, but you can't live on it. I think it's about £7.85 or something. And then we have what we call London living wage or national living wage in London. It's what I think about £11, 11 almost £12. You still cannot live on that. So we need real living wages. It sounds like the US. I don't want to like oversimplify or make unfair comparisons, but it sounds very similar because our... Uh, it is very, very similar. I mean, I just thought like, and this is my misperception, misconception of London. Oh, you know, like the UK, Europe, you have like universal healthcare and you have better policies for maternal leave and paternal leave. And I would just expect that the minimum wage would be way higher. Because like seven pounds is almost like eight dollars or yeah, it's nothing. And if it's anything, I would say that UK policymakers are copying the US. So even though we have universal health care, that literally needs investment. It literally is struggling. I remember being in hospital a couple of years ago and sort of they had to push my bed in between beds because there literally wasn't enough space. And I had to be on that particular unit. Oh my gosh. All right. And nurses are underpaid and overworked. Doctors underpaid and, and overworked. Wow. I realize I've been saying wow a lot in this conversation. <laughs> I'm just uh-huh. like floored. <laughs> I mean, there's so many conversations that we can have. Right, but you know, as I described it earlier, this is violence. This is state yes. violence because it impacts those people who are marginalized. It impacts women, elderly people, children, black and people of color the most. And refugees and asylum seekers, right? Who actually have no access to anything all right they call it no recourse to public funds i was hearing on the radio that now the uk is receiving quite a few number of afghan refugees yes but at the same time having a policy where they're turning people away in the middle of the ocean mm-hmm. yeah and being sort of really hard line We've had the Windrush scandal. So that's the generation of my parents who came here sort in the 50s and 60s. And they came as British subjects, British citizens, and now have sort of lost their right just because they can't produce a passport. Or, and people have died. People have being repatriated to countries they haven't lived in for 40, 50 years. Yes, I I watched a a piece on that and I was shocked. How does this even happen? Where, I mean, Trinidad and Tobago was a British colony. And so how can you unclaim that? Yeah, exactly. And 
So all these are some of the issues around structural racism, the patriarchy, ableism, you name it, that impacts people and impacts on their ability to access food and to eat a healthy and nutritious diet. Right. So what are some of the initiatives that you're involved in to increase food access to all, but also especially the marginalized communities? Okay. This is where farming comes in. Um, a big believer in food sovereignty, where people and communities have the right to decide how they grow their food, where they grow their food, what they want to eat, whilst also ensuring people have right livelihood. So part of my work is with a farmers union, Land Workers Alliance, who are the UK member of La Via Campesina. And La Via Campesina is probably the biggest farmers union and farmers union of peasants that represents many voiceless people. So urban, poor, young people, women, farmers, people working on the land. And some of the work we're doing is on what we call community food resilience. So we're connecting farmers with low-income communities to work together to supply food. The project that I run in London, Granville Community Kitchen, and I run that with a dear friend of mine, Leslie Barson. We're doing something similar, but taking it a step further. So one of the things we've started is a solidarity veg box scheme, and we were inspired by U.S. models, Karen Washington, Mama Kay, Soulfire Farm, Leah Penniman, and sort of changed that and adapted it for the UK and London context. And first, that included having culturally appropriate food because almost half of London is from an ethnic background and largely African, Caribbean, and Asian. So that was very important for us that we could supply food that met people's cultural and dietary needs. So we have a patchwork farm because we're in a highly urbanized part of London. And a patchwork just means you're growing on small plots of land. So we're across two community centers, one allotment on a housing estate, on a school, and someone's back garden. Ah. But it takes more than that to feed a community. Right. So we're starting a community farm on the peri-urban edges of London. How many people, families, do you provide for? Pre-COVID-19, we were supporting, I would say, about 50 families and up to 100 people Mm. who were in household food insecurity. Now we're supporting 
probably about 300 Oof. families or households a week. A week. And up to 1,200 people a week. And that number is going up. Where are you getting the food from? Is there enough food? We buy some, we take some food from out of the industrialized charitable surplus food complex, which is why we say we have to farm and we have to take control of the supply chain. Right. Because right now the UK is like in the midst of a perfect storm. So because of Brexit, we don't have workers and even that is an issue. To me, that's a legacy of the colonial plantation system that we still need people from elsewhere to come and work our farms. So we have no lorry drivers to bring food from the ports. So we're experiencing shortages on shelves from wholesalers, tariffs, which makes a lot of food unaffordable because... It's an additional tax on food. Yeah. And it particularly applies to a lot of food that's coming from Africa, Caribbean and South America. Wow. That was sort of food for enslaved people, the breadfruit, which was brought to the Caribbean and South America by the British and was free. Most people had a tree on their plots, right? Something like that costs almost £20. Wow. All right, so it's like all these issues. Plus, we have a shortage of natural gas, CO2 gas, all right, which is used in the food industry. Not enough farmers. We don't have any food security here in the UK. We produce probably about half our own food. Yes, this we know. <laughs> All right, 98% of our fruits come from EU. All right, so we have to be producing more food here and not within an industrial food system. That means we're putting in lots of chemicals and fertilizers and using chemicals to get rid of weeds and insects, herbicides and all this stuff, right? It needs to be agroecology. And agroecology is based on diversity and working with nature and valuing sort of, I prefer to use ancestral knowledge. Yes. So you mentioned that we just need to become self-sufficient in our own food production and we can't rely on government to do that for us. In the work that you're doing with the food bank and the policy work, is there some element of training families or creating workshops or other ideas that you have to build that kind of like capacity of self-sufficiency in these families? I think we can't ever be 100% self-sufficient which is why I'm always sort of about cooperative and community sort of solutions. We need each other. So no one person or one family could produce all of their food themselves. But we are trading Land Workers Alliance 
we're training people, we're mentoring people. I'm a firm believer in intergenerational learning. As I said, a lot of what I learned was from my father and grandmother and other elders in the community. And I hope, okay, I'm not quite an elder yet, but as an auntie, (laughs) I'm passing on my knowledge as well, be it in farming and horticulture, but also in terms of policy and advocacy. Yeah, you're a wisdom holder from from my perspective. And it's really, you have quite a challenge that you've chosen here. I I do it with joy and I do it from a place of heart because for me it is about love for people and love for planet and love for children and young people and wanting them to inherit a world that's better than one we have right now. Yes, I don't know if I'm an optimist, but I'd like to be hopeful that we can, if not reverse, halt the damage, the destruction we have caused and either revive or create, well, I don't know what it is, but just echoing what you said in terms of leaving the world better than what we had. So for our listeners out there who are contemplating growing their own food, what advice would you give them? Where can we start? The University of YouTube. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Such an amazing resource. Just forget all the other rubbish, but so much information there. I would say find a community garden as well, so that you're learning with and from others. And I think no matter where you are in the world, you can find someone, an elder or someone to mentor you. Yeah. Here in the U.S., we have extension programs, and they're usually like agricultural extension programs that are affiliated with universities. And often they have quite a lot of resources in terms of what kind of local plants to have in your garden and trees. And they also do give advice on how to grow vegetables depending on which extension office it is. I'm just curious, what's your approach to to farming as far as your work in increasing food security goes? And you did mention agroecology, but like what kind of specific plants, I mean, are fruits and veggies and yeah, general approach? Right. So agroecology is also about different methodologies or technologies as it were low technologies so agroforestry planting more trees and sort of having animals grazing or planting fruit trees and sort of crops in between it's also about working with whatever soil type you have and temperature and climate conditions So I can't say, well, oh, grow pumpkins if you don't have the conditions for that, which is why you need to observe and learn from someone who has been doing it. And it is about doing more in tune with nature and 
not trying to control it. So there's the that brilliant Japanese farmer, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name because I'll butcher it, but One Straw Revolution. Go read that. That's an amazing book. As is Farming Whilst Black by Leah Penniman. So there's so many resources out there. And I would say grow what you want to eat. I mean, okay, as much, you know, I can't exactly grow yams or plantains here. Those are things that we would have to import and we should be importing them in a way that's fair and just uh, those farmers. And that doesn't happen right now in trade policy. And all that's part of food sovereignty. And likewise, we shouldn't be buying any old seed. Right? We should be buying heirloom, open pollinated seed, saving our own seed, sharing within our communities. And we can't all save every plant and every food plant we're growing. We need to concentrate on maybe one or two and share with your neighbor and let your neighbor share something different with you. Right? Farming is about community. It really is. It really is. It makes so much sense when you were saying you can't grow all the food that you need. I mean, it's just not possible. That's why like a co-op is really the way to go. And I would think farming is a lot of hard work and you don't want to be doing it alone. And so I think that's why it's important to have community where you share your knowledge and you're like, my pumpkins didn't grow. <laughs> Are you having the same problem? <laughs> yeah. All right. But also farmers have a good time yeah. as well. We know how to party, <laughs> especially when we have good harvest yeah. or even bad harvest. Yeah. What fruits or veggies make it a party in your eyes? <laughs> Poi, baji, or Malabar spinach, amaranth, which people grow for either leaves or, or seeds, and I would say tomatoes. I just love freshly picked tomatoes off the vine. Nothing can beat that taste. Yes. This entire time you were talking about fresh veggies, I was like, oh, tomatoes are good. Yes, yes. But aren't tomatoes considered fruits, right? Technically, yes, they are. Okay. A lot of things we technically fruit. Fruits, <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a really insightful conversation. And it's sort of like a compliment to a previous conversation I had with two food justice activists from Eastern Africa. One is Susan Nakachwa from Uganda. And the other one is Leonida Odongo from Kenya. And a lot of the things that you have referenced, such as how trade negatively impacts smallholder farmers, the importance of being able to share seed, to hold seed. And one of the things that they talked about was the importance of women in agriculture that has been heavily overlooked. They often don't get a seat at the table, even though they're the ones who are cultivating the land. They're the ones who are putting the labor into the land. And traditionally, women were the seed holders. But now because of big 
ag corporations. It's and so many other reasons. Now it's kind of like in the man's hands. And I guess like you do some work on an international scale, I guess. And so what are some of your thoughts or what are some of the work that you're doing around like food justice issues internationally? Okay. So I'm doing work on the right to food and nutrition. And that's both here in the UK and internationally, because so many countries haven't signed on to that human right. And it is one of the basic human rights. So the US has never signed up to it. The UK has, but we don't have it in law. So as part of the global network on the rights of food and nutrition, we support countries in terms of looking at violations, looking at the state of food in the world, doing sort of deep dives into countries and issues. And rights of food also includes all the other rights. So I've just started doing some work with the civil society mechanism on sort of gender equity in terms of food and nutrition and farming systems. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really, gosh, stuff that I essentially didn't know about, but saddening to learn about it at the same time. But also grateful that there are people like yourselves and Susan and Leonida and many, many others who are fighting for, for these women farmers to get a seat at the table. And I really hope that can change. Yeah, not just women farmers, but women who work in food as well, because a lot of women are workers. In Africa, a lot of women are fisher folk and processors. And so it's fighting for the rights of women and children as well. So many children are enslaved within the food system particularly in banana production, in cocoa production, and lots of uh, crops. And that just isn't right. No. A child has a right to live a life, and everyone has a right to live a dignified life and not be hungry and to have a roof over their head. And Yes. So many troubles in this world. so many troubles yes but we're working on it one trouble at a time and with great hope yes we are so with that i wanted to take our conversation to the lightning round which is a series of four questions and basically answer the first thing that comes to your mind when i ask the question so let's get into it The first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Women, Race and Class, Angela Davis. Mm. I think that really started me on my journey of feminism. Yes, that's a good one. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Making lists. I have probably (laughs) two lists in front of me right now. Because I do so much, I have to make a list of everything I'm doing and check things off so that 
I remain organised. Still don't help me with my email inbox, though. <laughs> I think email is just a whole other beast. It just gets unruly very quickly, and it's really difficult to just get a control of it. At one point, I won't ever forget what one of my former supervisors told me is when she goes on vacation or when she comes back from vacation, she doesn't read any of the emails that kind of came in while she was on vacation. She just deletes all of them. (laughs) And she said, if somebody really wanted to get back to me or reach me, they'll email me again. And I'm like, oh, that's risky. I don't know if I would do that. But she does have a point. Yeah, she does. I mean, from that perspective, you know, power to you. But then also there are conversations that you're kind of copied into. And so you want to keep up with that, for example. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I fantasize about that sometimes. Just check all unread emails and delete. (laughs) Yes, I envy people who say they have zero emails in their inbox oh yeah (laughs) it just means that d people are looking to you as their solution person (laughs) like d's got the answer email d (laughs) what's the best piece of advice you've received oh i've received so many but i think in terms of food and farming it was like plant a seed. If it grows, it grows. If it doesn't, move on to the next thing. Yeah. Like I said, I have like seed rejection issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good advice and applicable to me. So I'm doing a workshop this fall because I want to turn my yard into like one of those native habitats. So I'm determined. I'll not take the rejection badly, hopefully. <laughs> And then the final question here is, what is your superpower? Oh, as someone who does a lot of equity and justice work, I think having a superpower sort of gives people the impression that you have to be special. And I'm not special. I'm just an ordinary person. Oh, no. Everyone's unique and special. (laughs) I was just passionate about people and planet and good food. Yeah, yeah. That's all it is. My superpower is I don't really sleep a lot. Oh, yeah, that's a good (laughs) one. That means like you get stuff done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are some of like your favorite dishes? The one that just like takes you home? So... I think what I didn't say earlier on is that I also cook. I am an award-winning cook. I prefer to use cook and not chef because I come from that line of women and men who cook the family. And I just love food from all over the world. I love Tongan food. Oh, I've never had Because it. it's like everything more or less in coconut milk. Mm-hmm. So I've prepared one dish where it's like taro leaves and you wrap either lamb, we won't go there with corned beef, another one of those 
colonial yeah. <laughs> leftovers <laughs> and it, it, it's stuffed with onion and coconut milk or they cook sort of the taro root in coconut milk. I love sort of Caribbean food, including First Peoples food. So there's a dish called Pepper Pot and it is wild-caught meats cooked in cassri pan cassri is like boiled cassava until it's black and that helps to preserve it plus lots of chili what else i love a good dal yes all right that's actually one of my specialties dal oh it's not that people take a good dal for for granted it's not as easy yeah and um, i grew up on dal it's my go-to it's one of the easiest well, for me, at least, easiest things to do. And I love a good... Yeah, I'll take that back. It's one of those dishes where it's easy to make it, like, wholesome or delicious. In a sense. Yeah. Just add salt and pepper and chilies and garlic and and curry leaves and, and mustard seeds and you're good. You're good. That's all you need. All right. And for me, it's about spices and herbs. So some people refer to my spice cabinet as Alibaba's <laughs> cabin because, <laughs> right, because I have so many spices. That's awesome. That's awesome. That would be like a treasure trove for me. So you should send me a picture of that. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably in a mess right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm always looking for like new spices to experiment with. Well, Dee, I know it's very late there, so I don't want to keep you any longer. Is there anything else you would like to add before we pause our conversation here? Yeah, I think we need to understand that we as ordinary people have power. We have power when we're together. And especially as our food systems and very food we eat is sort of under attack by big corporations with sort of cheap food and highly processed food that are literally killing us and killing our planet. And we have to come together as people and change that and come to that. Yeah, I love that. We have power. We do. We really do. And I think we forget that we do have the power to bring the change that we want to see. So thank you for reminding us that. Thank you for having me. Of course, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much about the UK and now I'm going to text some of my friends who live in London and be like, why didn't you tell me this stuff? (laughs) But maybe they don't even know about it. So I will share this episode with them. All right, well, Dee, thank you again for your time, for kind of sharing with us a part of your life's journey the impact that growing up in Trinidad had your love for food and your passion for justice in bringing food access to all especially those who have been vulnerable in the communities you serve so thank you D Wood so much for being with us on the Baking Green Ceilings thank you
Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.